everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ocean, Ocean Science Radio. Radio. I'm Andrew Kornblatt. And I'm Samantha Wishnack. Our series on ocean reproduction, titled Ocean Lovin', ocean lovin'. received such a great response from you all that we're continuing it through March. So once again, it's my pleasure to introduce our guest host, Skylar Bayer. Hey guys, for this episode, we are going to be highlighting two unique situations in the ocean lovin' world. One, how do species attract mates on the microscopic level, and two... Something terrifying from the depths below! Way to ham it up. Thanks. I've been practicing. We start out with Dr. Rachel Lasley Rasher. My name's Rachel Lasley Rasher. I am a postdoctoral researcher here at the Darling Marine Center, which is the University of Maine's marine lab. And I'm also the research coordinator for Maine Sea Grant. And what are we looking at today, Rachel? These are copepods. If you break that down, copepod means oar foot. So they're a member of the plankton. They're these tiny microscopic animals out in the ocean. If you look at them under a microscope, it sort of looks like they have this oar attached to the bottom of their torso. So they kind of look like a tiny shrimp. Seriously tiny, microscopic shrimp. But why study copepods? What makes them so important? They're the most abundant multicellular organism on the planet. Copepods are also sort of the baby food for our food, meaning that if we consider most of the commercially important fish species that end up on our plate, at one point or another, especially in their sort of juvenile or larval stage, they were solely dependent on zooplankton. Out in the marine environment, most of what comprises zooplankton is copepods. So Rachel, what was the attraction to the tiny sea creature reproduction? I was interested in mate signaling, specifically how small animals signal to each other in sort of this dilute, vast environment. Imagine you are microscopic. One of the tiniest animals in a giant universe. You eat, you try not to get eaten, and you try to reproduce. So how do you attract, let alone find, a mate while not becoming dinner? With copepods, it depends on which species you're talking about. For some, they have sort of elaborate mating behaviors to find one another. Some copepods use what is known as hydrodynamic signaling. This is kind of like they use the wake signature left behind by other animals in the ocean. Back to Rachel. The males detect the wake left behind females, and they do this sort of little mating dance where they'll do these series of of hops, and then they sort of hop in synchrony before mating. So that's sort of the medium that they use is sort of a hydrodynamic signal. And other species of copepods will use chemical signaling to attract a mate. Like Temra, Longicornis. For this, the females actually leave these pheromone trail filaments behind them as they swim, and the males can detect these trails and speed along the trails and catch up to the females. And in this way, a female can leave a trail that extends her signal several hundreds of body lengths. And so a male can detect a trail up to 10 seconds old and speed along that trail and and find the female. And when you are microscopic, that is a fair amount of distance. To put it in perspective, that's like smelling a possible romantic partner half a mile away. But wait, the diversity of copepod reproduction doesn't end there. There's species that carry their eggs, so they're egg brooders, and then there's also free spawners that spawn their eggs freely. But this is after fertilization, so they do have internal fertilization. So the males 
catch up to the females, find them either through these hydrodynamic or chemical signaling mechanisms. And then once they have caught the female, they transfer a spermatophore to her. And so a spermatophore is just a packet of sperm. Then the spermatophore empties into the, the female has what's called a genital atrium. As she extrudes her eggs, they become fertilized. A genital atrium sounds fancy. Ooh. So what happens after fertilization? At that point, it depends on the species that some species brood their eggs and carry those eggs around until they hatch. And then some other species freely spawn those those eggs. And so as you can imagine, predation on eggs that are freely spawned is much higher than eggs that are carried by females. But it's no picnic for copepod mothers who carry their babies to term. For an individual female carrying around eggs is very costly because it increases how conspicuous they are to predators and they are also not as good at escaping from predators as well. So it definitely comes with a cost. So again, they want to work hard not to make mistakes. And what we are seeing with copepods is that this very diverse group of tiny crustaceans have evolved specialized and unique ways to minimize mistakes and costs. One thing that both offshore species and nearshore species have to deal with is, so what do you do in the winter with extremely low temperatures and low phytoplankton resources? What's interesting here is the different strategies that each offshore or nearshore species uses to deal with the ravages of winter. Nearshore or estuarine species tend to lay resting eggs and this tends to be in the later early fall. And these eggs sink down into the sediment, remain dormant until more favorable conditions occur the following spring. There's been some work that suggests that these eggs can, you know, while the idea is for them to sort of overwinter, they uh, have found resting eggs decades old. When we look at how the offshore open sea copepod species deal with this phenomenon, it turns out they have a much more full body approach. Back to Rachel. Instead of laying resting eggs, they themselves go into a dormant stage. So, and that's usually at this late juvenile to uh, early adult phase. And they go into this resting phase known as diapause. Um, where they really slow down their metabolic function and it's usually in very deep water and again sort of remain in this resting phase until more favorable conditions arise. Tiny cryogenic crustaceans looking for love in the microverse. So what's next? Next up, the things of nightmares. But first, Greg. I'm Greg Rouse, and I'm a professor in marine biology at Scripps Oceanography, which is part of UC San Diego. So, Greg, what are you here to tell us about? These are an amazing group of annelid worms, and they're in the genus Ozodax, which means bone-devouring. So, does the mafia know about this yet? I think they might find that kind of handy. The Ozodax genus of worms are actually a relatively recent discovery. Greg and his colleagues only published the first description of one in 2004. After they were discovered on whale bones in Monterey Canyon by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. The whale had died and fallen to the bottom at about 3,000 meters depth, and they stumbled across it by chance with a remote-operated vehicle. What they found there is something out of a horror movie or crazy anime or zombie video game. The bones were covered with what looked like a red carpet of waving feathers. A red, fuzzy carpet? Just wait, it gets weirder. They collected some of the bones, 
and sent them to me. And after a lot of anatomy and DNA sequencing, we figured out that these were seboglinid uh, worms close to Riftia and Lamellabrachia. But what was remarkable was they were uh, actually eating the bone. Yeah, bone-eating redworms covering a whale carcass like a shag carpet. This is definitely giving me ideas for redecorating my living room. What's really cool here is that these worms are actually related to worms that live near hydrothermal vents. These are deep sea areas where the local environment is sulfuric, hot, and without sunlight. The related species of worms that can live on these smoking chimneys can survive on the hydrogen sulfide thanks to a symbiotic bacteria that converts it into digestible food. In Osidax worms... They do have symbiotic bacteria, and that uh, symbiosis with the bacteria and the fact that the worms can dissolve the bone allows them access to the nutrients in the bone, such as collagen, and that provides them with the nutrition. While Greg was examining his sample of these nightmare worms, he came upon a mystery. One of the first things that became apparent when I got the specimens was that they were all females. All up and down the bone sample, all the worms had relatively similar anatomy. They were up to seven centimeters long. They had most of the body was in the bone and there was a large mass that was an ovary, and from that branched out roots. The roots were branching out through the bone in in different ways. And from the ovary then came a trunk that then became these four plumes that were waving in the current that they had seen when they first saw the worms alive. They had a tube that ran along the trunk and came out with the four plumes, and that was an oviduct. Every single worm on the whalebone was a bone-eating ovary, and were obviously reproducing, basically colonizing the bone. So the worms were clearly putting eggs out into the water. But the mystery for a while was that there were no apparent males. And that stumped me for a while. So, where were the dudes? Yeah, where are the dudes? One day I was just looking again at some of the females and they live in a tube. So there's the main body is down in the bone. The tube is transparent. So I was looking at it and I saw these little 100 to 500 micron long ellipses in the uh, tube. Just for perspective, the width of a human hair is roughly 100 microns, so these things are tiny. I pulled some of those out and put them under a microscope and initially thought, oh, they might be spermatophores, and it turns out that they had all sorts of sperm stages, and then I looked closely and it dawned on me that these were actually dwarf males. It turns out that the males of this species are in the range of 100,000 times smaller than the female. They don't eat, but live off of all of the energy they had with them when they were eggs. Hundreds of these sperms spewing drones live inside the tube of every female. In the end, we found that, depending on the species, uh, the harems, we called them, a female could have up to 600 of these males in her tube. And they tended to congregate around her oviduct. When these tiny males use up the last of their energy, the giant female worms need to replenish their harem. The females have to continually gather males from the plankton. In fact, what they appear to do is gather larvae from the plankton, and the larvae likely are facultatively male or female. That means that the sexual state of the individual is completely dependent on the motion of the ocean. It becomes a toss-up whether or not the offspring of these worms become the larger full-sized females or end up trapped as dwarf sperm producers for the rest of their short lives. We think if they land on bone, they become females, but if they're taken in by a female into her tube, they'll become a male. But it gets even weirder. The only confounding part of this story is that we have found one Ozodac species where both sexes eat bone. This one is a condition where the male is nearly the same size as a female. So dwarf males have evolved multiple times across uh, the animals, in barnacles, for instance, and echiurine worms, and fish uh, such as anglerfish. 
But this is the first case where a phylogeny has shown that, that dwarfs have been lost and that similar sized sexes have re-evolved. So their theory, and we emphasize that it's currently only a theory, on why this reversal on dwarf males is that it's actually a matter of space competition. One of the reasons that dwarf males evolve is where it's hard to find a mate or where there is competition for space. In the bed hedging scenario, the evolution of dwarf males when there's not much space seems to make sense for larvae. But if there's not competition for space, uh, and this Ozodax is one of the smallest of all Ozodax for the females, then there are evolutionary reasons why dwarf males may well wish evolutionarily, in a sense, to switch back to having access to bone and feed on bone. One. Because they then can mate with more than one female. A dwarf male is only stuck with one female. Forever trapped in a tube. And two. They have food that they can then make as much sperm as they can. Because they can actually ingest food, these larger males can keep producing sperm until the cows come home. There's certainly not too shocking that they manage to colonize bone. The mechanism is how they colonize bone from their chemosynthetic eating ancestor is certainly a mystery that we have yet to really figure out how this switch happened and the dramatic alterations in morphology that also came with it. So that's why I'm kind of interested to see if we keep finding more Ozodax, we might find some surprises in terms of their anatomy. As we explore more of the ocean, the odds of finding more strange varieties of this interesting and terrifying worm increases. From tiny copepods to the awesome craziness of bone-eating worms, that wraps up this episode. Be sure to join us next time for an all-new Ocean Ocean Science Science Radio. So do you think Osidox males are bad to the bone? Bad. Bad to the whale bone. I wonder if a female copepod has ever thought about redecorating her genital atrium, maybe with some nice spring tones. What do you think, Samantha? Genital atrium? It just sounds so fragile and sharp around the edges if it breaks.